Thank you, David, and you young people. Great to see the children learning Scripture. Thankful for the work that you're doing here with the children. We're very interested in that for many reasons. We're thankful to see them hiding the Word of God in their hearts that they might not sin against God. But also, don't forget, this is the next generation. One of the things is we study the book of Acts... The Lord is doing a great work. We're participating with Him in handing off the torch to the next generation. We want that light to continue here. Amen? We want it to be continued after we're gone, after we old ones are gone. We don't want the testimony to end with us. And so we've got a responsibility to start and start with them young, like you're doing, building in the Word of God into them. We want to come back to Acts chapter 1 in our studies. And as you're turning there, just want to mention uh, the uh, Israel trip we are planning in the will of the Lord. Uh, Johns and Suma have done a great work in uh, making contacts with the various agencies and planning to make something like this occur. And we're looking at uh, March, I think it's March 20th of 2012 through April 3rd. And one of the things that we want to do on this trip, there were a couple of things that we made some personal adjustments with. Uh, the tour agency had a particular itinerary they laid out that they like to use, and, and uh, we had some different ideas of some places we thought would be profitable to see and visit, and they worked with us on that. And so we've, we've modified the itinerary that's on the sheet that you may have seen in the back, and the new sheets are going to be coming out in a couple of weeks uh, John's was telling me yesterday. So those will be coming out. You'll see the itinerary covering some of the major sites. There's a lot of archaeological work that's been done recently in the north in Hatsor. And that's one place that it isn't on the itinerary. I don't think that that's back there, but one place we're planning to go to. And then we'll probably get by the ancient city of Ai, or I as they call it in Hebrew, as well. There's been a lot of work done by uh, Bryant Wood and the... Uh, uh, archaeological society there. So be praying about that if you're interested. One of the things that we want to do on this trip, this isn't what I call a lollipop tour, where you just sit in the bus and look out the window with your lollipop and look at the different sites. We're going to get out of the bus and go to the site, read from the Scripture, and try to see in three dimensions what we're only able to see in two dimensions as we read the Word of God. That's the real profit of it. And each night in the hotel... We'll have lectures uh, from the Word of God and from some maps and, and geography so we can be planning already ahead what to look for when we get to the sites for that next day. I've done that in the past myself. I found it was very profitable to do that because when you come to a site and you see it for the first or even the second or third time, your eye gate and your ear gate and, and your whole mind is overwhelmed by what you see at first. And you miss a lot because you become, your eye gets focused on one thing or the other that may not be as important as some of the other aspects of this site. So we'll try to prepare that way. That way we can get the optimum benefit of our time and study over there. And then use that as a framework to continue our ministry for the Lord, each one of us individually here in this local testimony and as the Lord leads. Amen. So be praying about that if you're interested. One of the things as we study the book of Acts, you know, several, a couple of decades ago, not several really, a couple of decades ago, uh, Alex Haley did a book called Roots. 
and they made a television series out of it. And it was very profitable for people to see the roots from which they came, their genealogical roots, their cultural roots. But those of us that are born again, that both of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, that are part of the church, that are Christians, as the Bible calls us, we have roots too. And, and there's great benefit in studying and reminding ourselves of which those roots are. And that's what the book of Acts, one of the great prophets of continually studying and going back to the book of Acts. The epistles that follow the book of Acts are, are much more difficult to understand without the adequate understanding of the historical framework in which they were written. And Acts 1-28 to gives us that historical framework. It also helps us to see that you know, God has a plan of redemption. That beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and it continues to be worked out until Revelation chapter 20. So a large section of the Word of God includes God outworking and defining and explaining what is in His mind for us. For us who are His own. And so the book of Acts is a, is a real help in that way as well. And of course, it helps us in worship and praise of our Lord Jesus because as we saw on Wednesday night, Luke tells us in verse 1, what I'm about to write to you, O Theophilus, is what Jesus began both to do and to teach. He's still doing it, isn't He? He said in Matthew sixteen eighteen. In a prophecy at that time, it wasn't, it wasn't really starting yet. He says, I will, future tense, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. In other words, it will be effected. I will complete that which I began. Of course, he does. He's God. And here we are almost 2,000 years since he began that work in 30 A.D., He's still building His church. You and I are part of this multinational, multi-ethnic, enormous group of people that have been believers and followers of Jesus Christ all the way back to the beginning of the church in 30 A.D., which Luke describes for us in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And we're going to all be together in the heavenly Jerusalem. We're going to spend eternity together. We may be next door neighbors in the heavenly Jerusalem. But we recognize right now, God has a plan and mission for each one of us who are His followers. By the way, the word Christian means follower of Christ. Sometimes you hear the definition, you know, Luke records it for us right here in, in in the book of Acts. This is where we see it used. And we think, well, Christians are little Christ. Maybe you've heard that term. You know, well, we're not deity. <laughs> and we don't want to diminish deity. The deity of Christ is something that is like... A, there's, there's, a, there's a sense in which He's altogether separate and transcendent from us. Let's not forget the fear of the Lord and the, and the reverence we should have for the Lord. He's not our buddy. He's not the man upstairs. He's God. He's Creator. And Redeemer. 
But the word Christian, well, the best way to understand Christian is to see how a parallel word like it is used in the Gospel and Acts. And a parallel word is Herodian. Now, Herod was a king. Jesus Christ is the king. And, and the Herodians, we read about the Herodians, were the Herodians little Herods? No. Were they descendants of Herod genealogically? No. They were people that followed Herod and agreed with his program and agreed with his principles and agreed with his whole outlook on life. That's what a Herodian was. And sought to affect the program of Herod in their lives and in their culture. So then a Christian is a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ that agrees with Him and His leadership and His plan and His program and what He wants to affect in this world, in our lives individually and corporately. That's what a Christian is. We bought into it. We agree with Him. We want to participate in His work. And it's a minimal thing. Our participation is, you know, I talk about my little niche in the vineyard. And you have, and it's a little niche. It's a, it's a, when you look at the vineyard and you look at the amount of people, and most of them of the church is in glory now. When you think about from 30 A.D. till now, and, and all of them had a participant part to play. And so, yes, we, but we do have a niche. It may be a little niche, but we have a niche in the vineyard that we are responsible for. Christ has engifted us and, and He's enabled us. And He's going to hold us accountable for how we serve Him in our own individual area of calling and service. So how are we going to follow Him if we don't know what, he, what His instructions are? See, and, the, and the, the book of Acts and the epistles give us instructions with regard to the church. We don't find much in the way of instruction for the church in the Gospels as such, although there are certain principles there that carry through, and also in the Old Testament. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, the church is a mystery in the Old Testament. It's a truth in God's mind that He planned before the foundation of the world, but He didn't reveal it until He revealed it through His holy apostles and prophets. Ephesians 3 tells us. And those holy apostles and prophets have recorded it in the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the New Testament is called the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' teaching. Because the apostles are the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone, Acts chapter I mean Ephesians two twenty. Jesus Christ the chief cornerstone upon all of the foundation and the massive structure of this temple that this spiritual temple that Christ is erecting. He is the foundational cornerstone. Without Him, it all crumbles. But then the apostles are the foundation, and they've laid that foundation in the New Testament. There isn't any new foundation going on. The foundation was laid. We're not expecting to bring in new revelation. You with me on that? I don't have a loose-leaf Bible. My Bible is bound. It, it, from Revelation, that's the last. That's, the, that's the, the closure. And there's enough here <laughs> to tell us how we should live. So if we come to Acts chapter 1... We read in the first three verses, and we looked at these already on Wednesday night, so I won't go into as much detail, but just to summarize, 
The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. That's his ascension, what's recorded in verses 9, 10, and 11 of this chapter. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he threw... In other words, he was taken up, he ascended, after he threw the Holy Spirit had given commandments or instructions to the apostles whom he had chosen. Thank God the apostles were there to record them. See, the Lord is is using them just like he uses them in the feeding of the 5,000. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and then he uses them to distribute it among the fifties and hundreds. Right? And he still does that. Break thou the bread of life. And he distributed it through the apostles. That's why it's the apostles' doctrine. They record it. They're the eyewitnesses. Verse 3, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is Luke's introduction to the book of Acts. Luke is telling us in this introduction that the book of Acts is a continuation of something else he's also written to this individual Theophilus. And so we as students of the Word of God would say, well, what else did Luke write to Theophilus? Well, he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we looked at that on Wednesday night. And there's an introduction to the Gospel of Luke in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of Luke. We looked at that already. But it's important to see that because that introduction, since Luke Acts was one volume originally in the early church, and later on as they put together the canon of the church, they separated Acts out into a book in between the Gospels and the Epistles. But originally you had the Gospels and the Epistles, and Acts was linked up with Luke. So Luke writes this, the same writer. So we're going to expect the same kind of words to be used. That's helpful in our hermeneutical understanding of the in trying to interpret certain words that he uses. Luke has a style. Luke has a particular vocabulary. And, and the Lucan vocabulary that we see in the Gospel of Luke continues in the book of Acts. And actually it's interesting, it continues in the book of Hebrews too. And that's why many who've tried to... In, understand who wrote Hebrews, they say, well, the, the, the writing of Hebrews is like Luke. But Eusebius, the early church historian, and I think internally in the Bible you can make a good case for the fact, but Eusebius tells us that Paul wrote Hebrews while he was in the prison in Caesarea, right after when he returned to Jerusalem. Remember, he had longed to go back to Jerusalem at the end, near the end of his life, his last trip to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21. And he meets up with James, the brother of our Lord. And James says, look, at all the people that are believers here in the Jerusalem church, and they're all zealous for Christ? No. They're zealous for the law. That's where Paul gives his great testimony, you know, in chapter 22. And then he gets arrested, and he's two years in Caesarea, and Paul's thinking by the Holy Spirit. They're zealous for the law. They need to be zealous for Christ. Christ is the fullness of the law. And, and, and I think that's why the Lord led him to write Hebrews. Now, if he's writing it to the Hebrews, he's certainly not going to write it in Greek. He speaks to them in Acts chapter 22 in their own language. He begins to speak in Hebrew and the crowd gets quiet and listens to him. Before that, they wouldn't. 
So he's obviously going to write the book of Hebrews in Hebrew. And then the Lord led Luke, his traveling companion, to translate it into the Greek. That's what Eusebius tells us. That's external historical evidence outside the Bible. But to me, there's a lot of historical, internal historical evidence too in Hebrews and in other books to indicate that Paul probably wrote that. That's a separate issue. But I'm just giving you that as an example why the book of Acts can be so helpful for us. Because Paul comes back to Jerusalem and, and now after a couple of decades of the testimony of the Jerusalem church... They're still zealous for the law. There's still confusion. Galatians has to deal with that. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 has to deal with this confusion about this transition from the Old Covenant to the New. And that's what the the whole thrust of the book of Hebrews is about, isn't it? He says, the writer of Hebrews says, that God has made the Old One obsolete. And God's the only one that could do it because He gave the Old Covenant. But he's made the old one obsolete. You know, somebody called me a few years ago and said, Brother, how many new covenants are there? I read some commentary and they say there's more than one new covenant. I said, Well, how many old covenants are there? Because there's, there's only two. There's, there's, he made the old one obsolete and he brought in the new. There's the old and the new in the book of Hebrews. That's it. Then he quotes Jeremiah 31 to validate. It's the same new covenant Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31. So we, we interpret the Word of God by the helps He gives us, and the book of Acts is really helpful in that way, isn't it? But there's another thing. Our Lord recognizes here that the first thing, the first thing that He wants to make certain in the minds of His followers, the eleven here and a few others, the first thing he wants to make certain is what? That he's really alive. Do you see that? What Luke says in verse 2, that, that through the Holy... They made um, Verse 3, I'm sorry, he, that he presented himself alive after his suffering. His suffering is a reference to the cross and the whole... The trials, Gethsemane, the trials, the cross, that whole event, that's his suffering culminating in the cross and His death on the cross. Luke refers to that as His suffering. And after His suffering, He presented Himself alive. You say, well, why is that so important? Because you won't be a follower of Jesus Christ, and I won't be either, if you don't really believe He's alive. If you think He's still in the tomb somewhere, or if you think that he really didn't die on the cross in a physical body and then rose in a physical body, you're not going to you're not going to be an effective Christian. You're probably not going to even be born again. And if you're not born again, you're still in your sins. And guess where you're going to spend eternity? In the wrong place. So the first thing he wants to establish, and I think it's helpful to uh, hold your finger here in Acts one and go back to Luke chapter twenty four because. Acts chapter 1 really flows out from Luke chapter 24. In other words, if Luke is the Gospel of Luke is volume 1 and Acts is volume 2, then in the original when they were bound together, you would read Luke 24 right before you'd read Acts 1. You with me? 
So you read in Acts 1 and, and you, you're able to flip right back to the previous pages, Luke 24. In Luke 24, in beginning in verse 36, down through verse 43 here, we see how our Lord, there's a little more detail given. You say, well, how come Luke didn't give us this in Acts 1? Because he already knows he's given it in chapter 24 of Luke. This is more detailed. He amplifies on what he just said in verses 1 through 3 of Acts 1. Now, as verse 36, as they said these things, remember the, the two that were on the road to Emmaus, they encounter the Lord, they come back, and they meet it back up. They, they were in a dangerous way. The Lord had told them not to depart from Jerusalem, and here's two of them departing from Jerusalem. In other words, they're acting like unbelievers. Whether they're unbelievers or not, I'm not sure we can say from the text, but, but they're acting like unbelievers. They're walking away. They're saying, we thought He was the Messiah, but... And our Lord has to rebuke them. He says, oh, you slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You should be ready for this. You see, they believed some of what the prophets had spoken, hadn't they? I mean, they believed that Israel was going to be restored. They believed in the kingdom. They believed in, in God restoring this planet and all of the prophecies in the old. They believed some of it, but they didn't believe all of it. And there are people like that today, aren't there? We encounter people like that today. There may be people like that in this room. Do you believe the whole counsel of God or just part of it? So when you come to the Bible, you don't come to it like a buffet. Right? You know, in a buffet, you say, well, I have a little of this, and I'll have a little of this, and I'll have a little of this. And, and all of the cults and many of the religions of this world take a smorgasbord or buffet approach to the Bible. They all will take parts of it. The devil knows he can't trick people and deceive them by just saying the whole Bible's wrong. So he uses parts of it. His approach is to dismantle it. To take the binding off of it and pull pages out, if you will. But we, who are true Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we believe the whole counsel of God. Do I hear an amen on that, I hope? We, we believe the whole counsel of God, all of it. Genesis to Revelation. It's inspired by God. It's preserved by God. He has kept it through all the different attempts that the devil has done. Down there have been bonfires where the most recent was the biggest, most recent one was in in '68 in the Cultural Revolution in China, where all the Bibles and New Testaments that the missionaries had been bringing over there for 150 years were gathered up by those followers of Mao Zedong, and they had huge bonfires and they burned them. So a few years ago, some of us boarded a plane and hid some Bibles in bags and took them back over there. And now they're printing them. Now they're allowed to print them in the land. They weren't allowed to in the 90s. You see, you can't, you can't suppress the truth of God indefinitely. You know, Romans 1, Paul says that the unbeliever seeks to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we want to exalt the truth in righteousness. And some of us in this room, I wouldn't have preached this ten years ago. 
I'm not sure I would have preached it five years ago, but I think I can safely preach it today. Some of us in this room may be called to die for our faith in the Bible. Would you do that? Are you convinced it's the Word of God? Because if you're not convinced, you better get convinced. You better get off the fence. We're not here to play church. Amen? We're not here to play church. We're here to get built up and established in our most holy faith. It's our life or death matter. Our enemy is stronger than anything we have in ourselves in the flesh. He's not stronger than God. And greater is he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. The the devil and his fallen angels in the world. But still, our enemy is formidable. and, And there's no time. Beloved, you know this. I'm not telling you anything. You know that there's no time to play church anymore. In America, after World War II, and and after such a close approach to the end of the world in many people's minds, the churches in the late 40s and the 50s and early 60s were filled up in America, I'm told. I'm told that. But many of the people just went and played church because they were scared. They weren't weren't going there to be instructed in the Word of God. They didn't believe the Word of God. But we who are disciples of Jesus Christ, we're willing to die for what we believe, I hope. Revelation 12, 11, right? They believed in the blood of the Lamb. They overcame through the blood of the Lamb. And how does he put it? And did not hold on to their lives under the death. How does he put it? Better to get the actual wording of it. 12, 11... And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they didn't love their lives more than they loved their testimony for Christ. And that needs to be true of us. And if you're not there, if you're not to that place in your understanding and appreciation of Christ and His word, don't stop coming to church. Don't stop coming to Boulevard. But keep asking questions. We, we want to bring you to that place. But those of us that are there, let's stop doubting the Word of God. The Word of God is real. Christ is alive, beloved. He's coming back. He is seated at the Father's right hand right now in a human body. A glorified human body, but a human body. Do you believe that? That's what the Word tells us. He's not just a spirit or a ghost or a phantom. He is a person. And that's what he goes on, Luke goes on to describe here. So in verse 36 of Luke 24, As they said these things, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace. Because they were just the opposite of that. They were full of anxiety. They were wondering what's going to happen to them if they killed and crucified their leader, what they're going to be next, right? The apostles were going to be next, and, and they were nervous. But they were terrified and frightened, and suppose they had seen a spirit. See, they, they think they're seeing the Lord, but they suppose they're seeing a spirit. Because He's come in and stood in the midst of them. And He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And that's what He says to us today. If you're troubled and doubtful about the resurrection of Christ. 
He will say to you today by the Spirit through the Word of God, Why are you troubled and why are you yielding to the doubts in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. It's really me. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And of course they did handle him. How do we know that? Because John tells us in the letter of 1 John that we handled him, who is the word of life. We touched him, we saw him, we heard him, and we grabbed hold of him and there was substance to him. He had flesh and bones, see. And then he's, he's still concerned about their faith and he wants to help them. So in verse 40 he says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, the scars. So that means these scars from the cross are in his glorified body still to be seen. His hands and his feet and his side because of what we see in John chapter 20. But while they still did not believe for joy <laughs> and marveled, I can so relate to them here. They're so overjoyed that he's alive, but then they're doubtful. Maybe, maybe we're just having a vision here, or maybe, maybe this isn't real. He says, have you any food? And why would he ask that? You think he was hungry? Hadn't eaten for a while? What was the problem? He wanted to show them by eating food that he was in a real physical body. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and ate it in their presence. Peter will say that in one of his messages. We did eat with him in his glorified body. We did eat with him. And the food, they couldn't see the food going down through his esophagus like you could. He was in a real body. So that's the first thing Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 is that the Lord demonstrated to them He was alive with many infallible proofs. Infallible means no failure. Right? In other words, the proof of His resurrection is undeniable. And these men are the witnesses. You and I haven't seen Him. Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 1, whom having not seen ye love, you haven't seen him. And if you say you've seen him, I know you haven't because I'm going to believe the Bible over what you might say. No offense. The Bible says we haven't seen him and yet we still love him. But the apostles saw him. And so I'm believing their account. How about you? I'm believing their written account of what they saw, heard, felt and they've recorded these things that's what he's going to tell them down in verse 8 ye are witnesses of me you are my witnesses he says to the eleven and apparently Matthias is present we'll, we'll look at that Lord willing tonight why they add Matthias in the later part of the chapter but then our Lord coming back to hold your finger in Luke 24 but coming back to Acts chapter 1 our Lord then, in verses 4, 5, and... Well, let's just say 4 and 5 for, for a second. Let me just go a few more minutes. Verse 4. And being assembled together with them. 
Brother mentioned that term earlier this morning. I, I like that. They were assembled together. That's what this is. We're assembled together. He'll say it again in verse 6. When they had come together. He'll say it again in verse 14. They all continued with one accord. That is together. And that's going to be emphasized all the way through Acts. It's not an accident. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to gather together with other Christians. So back to verse 4. Being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. And that's what He's going to work out down through verse 8. But there's one thing He said in verse 3. Did you notice that at the end of the verse? There's something He said at the end of verse 3. After Luke mentioned about the many infallible proofs, and being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Huh. He's speaking to them about the kingdom. Does that surprise you? That He would be speaking to them about the kingdom? I mean, we might say, Lord, don't you want to give them church truth? So what does he mean by the kingdom of God? Well, there won't be time to develop that this morning. But let me just give you a few ideas to think about till we get to tonight. Go back to Luke chapter 24. This time we'll pick up at verse 44. You see, all of the Old Testament was looking ahead to the kingdom. The kingdom links all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 where the word dominion is used. You remember when man was created, man and woman, when man and woman were created by God in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, what was the charge or the mission or the responsibility given to them? Have dominion over all the earth. And they lost that in chapter 3. Who's the one who has dominion over the earth now? The prince of the power of the air. The one who usurped it from him. Satan. He usurped it. He, Satan is so envious of man and woman. He's so envious of us as creatures. I guess he must have thought he should have been given the earth. Uh, he was, a, he was a, one of the cherubim. He was right up there that the throne of God. And he must have thought, or at least he wanted it, but he is so... I mean, if you think... If you can imagine being envious of someone, and all of us struggle with envy in different ways. If you can imagine being envious and then move it to the nth degree, that's Satan. The ultimate in envy. And he envies you and me more than anybody on this planet. You know why? <laughs> because we've been given something he'll never get. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We're not as smart as He is. We're not as beautiful as He is. And yet God, by His grace, has given it to us. That, that sticks right in His... He, does, he doesn't like that. He usurped it, but only for a time. God knew He would do this, of course. And God knew what He would do when Satan did this. God has a plan. He's working it out. And the kingdom is part of that plan. And the apostles knew that. And our Lord in verse 44 of Luke 24, then He says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Referring to the teachings in the Gospels. 
that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So he takes the Hebrew Old Testament, divides it into three main sections. The Torah, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says that all things are going to be fulfilled that were written there concerning me. Indicating that not all of it had been fulfilled yet, had it? There were things yet to be fulfilled. And then verse 45, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. This is important to see. This is why we pray before we study the Word of God, why we pray before we read the Word of God. I had a brother come up to me one time not too long ago in another meeting, another place, and say, Brother, watch out, you're getting close to Calvinism here. Well, let's not let Calvinism override Biblicism. Brother, I'm just being biblical. The Bible says that the Lord opens our understanding, and yet we are required to study. The Bible says that God draws people to Himself, and yet we are to believe. And, and we, we accept both of these. Don't let Dave Hunt or some writer cloud your idea. I'm, uh, I appreciate Dave Hunt's work. This brother was saying, Dave Hunt says this, Dave Hunt says that. I don't know what he says. I know what the Bible says. I'm not a follower of a man. I hope he wrote the right things. I hope he's scriptural. But I don't know. I don't have time to check him out. To his own master he stands or falls. I, I'm just busy studying this book. And it's taken everything I've got. Take all the time I have. Takes all the energy I have. And, and I'm never exhausting it. And I loved devouring it. Your words were found and I did eat them. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. I, I love His Word. The more I get into it, the more I'm drawn into it. And, and I know you know that experience too. Psalm 119, the entire psalm, the writer unfolds that. And so the Lord goes to the... And that, that must have been a fact. You say, I wish I was there at that study that these, these 11 got such a privilege we didn't get. We do have it, beloved. We do have it. That's what the book of Acts and the epistles beginning with Romans all the way to the book of Jude and then the prophecy book of Revelation. This is what they've written is what the lessons He just gave them. It has been recorded. And so as we study the New Testament, the book of Acts all the way through the epistles in Revelation, we begin to enter into what the apostles experienced for the first time here. And so we'll look tonight, Lord willing, at what it meant to study about the kingdom of God. Where do you think he went to teach them about the kingdom of God? And what did it mean for him? And I hope in our studies we are trying to supplement the studies you've already been doing in the book of Acts. That's all we're trying to do. To try to hit it again. And encourage us and inspire us. The Word of God is alive, isn't it? And the Lord Jesus is alive too. I can't wait to see Him. So Father, we thank You, O Lord, for Your Word and how You preserved it. It, it 
it boggles my mind. I'm sure it boggles all our minds how you have preserved it down through the centuries and all the many governments and authorities of men that have tried to push the Bible down and destroy it. But, but you've overruled. And here we are studying it this morning and we pray, O oh Lord, that you will help each of us. Give us a hunger. Open our hearts like you did here to the disciples that we might understand the Word of God and learn more of you and then do it. Then live it and teach it to others. We do give you thanks, O Lord, for your grace. And we ask in the precious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.